You're listening to the TCF World Podcast, episode 41. I'm joined by Richard Gowan, the UN Director at the International Crisis Group. We're in New York City during the UN General Assembly week. You'll hear maybe some sirens of dignitaries passing by outside the window. Uh, But we're here in Richard's office to talk about the state of the United Nations and its relationship with the United States. And finally, uh, the potential to revive international diplomacy and norms uh, going forward. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, So let's launch right into this. Um, Give us an overview, Richard, of what, uh, uh, how is the relationship between the United Nations and, and the United States? Well, US-UN relations have been a bit of a roller coaster since Donald Trump became president. And I think we can divide Trump's relations with the UN into three parts. The first part, back in 2017, was a curiously positive period. Trump had a strong ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley. Haley was able to negotiate some pretty serious deals on issues, most obviously North Korea. And if you go back to 2017, it seemed like Trump might not be as bad for the UN as a lot of people had been predicting. Unfortunately, if you move forward into 2018 um, and this year, we've entered a different phase in which um, Trump has been much more influenced by figures antipathetic to the UN, such as John Bolton until recently, and Mike Pompeo. And uh, under their influence, he has walked away from a lot of treaties, walked away from a lot of international institutions, and really undermined US-UN relations. Now, we may be on the verge of a third phase, the post-Bolton phase, uh, in which uh, Trump is perhaps going to be a little less uh, nasty towards the UN because he's lost a national security advisor who does hate or does hate the institution. But we really don't know what this is going to look like. And, and what's the difference between? I mean, so, so we have a, a sense of the US and how much or how little mm-hmm. it, it operates in an international, multilateral way with the world, and and that's maybe a separate question from how it treats the United Nations. So I want you to unpack that a little bit. I mean, uh, uh, both George W. Bush and. Trump have been very unilateral on a lot of central issues, uh, but they had different, or maybe in your view, I'm curious, have they had different uh, uh, ways of uh, valuing or devaluing the United Nations as, as an institution that has its own possible value? You know, the funny thing was, although the Bush administration uh, you know, split badly with other powers at the UN over Iraq, the Bush team actually saw the UN as being quite useful to American interests in other spheres. So even in the wake of the 2003 Iraq fights, you saw the US supporting the deployment of UN peacekeepers to Haiti and to Liberia and uh, to Sudan. Um, You know, Bush didn't respect the UN in an idealistic way, but he used it in a fairly um, practical fashion. In the last year... Um, the Trump administration has been taking a very different approach to the UN. It really just doesn't want um, the organization to do anything at all. And so we've seen um, the US, you know, block the UN taking any action on the worsening fighting in in Libya, for example. 
And even on areas where the US has given a UN mediator a green light to try and make peace, like Yemen, the support from Washington has been very, very limited. So I would distinguish between Bush's approach, which was pragmatic, but did actually leave some space for the UN to to do good in second-order crisis spots, and the Trump administration, which is more about starving the UN of of diplomatic oxygen. So you've been referring to some of the high-profile political decisions. What about the institutional uh, uh, spine of this relationship, the the funding that I guess the United States is the largest single funder of the United Nations? Uh, The one thing that struck my notice was the defunding of UNRWA. But what's the condition of the institutional, uh, financial, and and political support for all the uh, behind the scenes, sort of under under the surface of the iceberg uh, that really makes up the whole UN system. The US has certainly been uh, pulling back money wherever it can from the UN since Trump took office. You mentioned UNRWA. Uh, another example is peacekeeping operations, where the US has, you know, basically cut funding to to Blue Helmet missions um, about as far as it can go before you start having really severe operational um, negative effects on on the missions in places like DRC. Uh, It's not across the board. We have seen the US raise its funding for some UN agencies, such as the World Food Program. Um, There's actually been an increase in US funding uh, to the World Bank, you know, and much of that money does go to poorer nations which the UN is assisting. So I, I wouldn't put it in simply black and white terms that the U.S. is trying to defund the U.N., um, but it certainly is looking for for cuts wherever it can. There has been one positive story there, which is underappreciated, which is that um, Congress, including Republican members of Congress, have often reversed the administration's budget cuts and actually really frustrated the administration by insisting on keeping up funding to the U.N., uh, in areas which the White House would have preferred to defund. Give me a, uh, your take on the on the historical arc here, uh, since maybe the end of the Cold War, when the when the United Nations was, uh, you know, uh, with the with the first uh, or the second Gulf War, whatever we want to call the nineteen ninety one Gulf War, uh, where there was this idea that maybe the United Nations was really going to be the uh, the forum for international war and peace and development and and even you know a republican uh the first president bush and a democrat uh, the uh, president clinton seemed really committed to this idea of uh un centrality uh and and i i'm wondering has there been a steady erosion in america's uh, expectations of the un or commitment to it uh over those two decades since the early 90s i think that you know, U.S. faith in the U.N. Uh, peaked in the very early 90s and then fell off a cliff. And the events in Somalia, Bosnia, Rwanda in the mid-1990s did you know, huge damage to U.S. administration's faith in the U.N. And it's never fully recovered. Since the mid-1990s, you've really seen U.S.-U.N. relations uh, oscillate from uh, you know, very bad, as in the mid-period of the Clinton administration, um, to okay, as when Holbrook was here, then back to bad under Bush. It, it comes to and fro. I think that the Obama administration represented a, 
uh, a bit of a shift. You know, Obama was not an obsessive fan of the UN. Uh, he was not actually as interested in multilateralism as you know some foreign observers in in Europe and elsewhere hoped. But he did understand that the UN had value, um, and he saw it as having value as a place to deal with China in particular. So on climate change and development, the Obama administration did invest uh, quite a bit in the UN. But as I said at the the start of the podcast, that has all been shaken up again by by Trump um, in in a very erratic fashion. Are are these are these relationships, or, or rather, is this relationship between the United States and the UN uh, relatively easy to mend? I'm thinking back to the era when John Bolton was UN ambassador in the early 2000s, and people at the time humiliating people with these standing meetings, and I mean, literally standing up during meetings, uh, and people at the time said. Literally oh, well, walking out of meetings with Kofi Annan um, just because he said that time was up. Yeah. So the relationship recovered from that. Is it plausible that that uh, that the UN is such a large and uh, has so many constituents that it can just absorb? You know, someone goes off the rails like the United States for a while. When it comes back, they'll just sort of pick up uh, where where they left off. To some extent, yes. And if we have a democratic president in twenty twenty one, I would assume that she or he would follow the example of the Obama administration in the post-Bush era and you know, very publicly and very symbolically re-engage with the UN to sort of show a renewed sense of internationalism. So you know, to take one small example, Bush boycotted the Human Rights Council in Geneva, Obama came into office and the US immediately um, signed up to, the, to a term on the Human Rights Council. Guess what? Trump pulled out of the Human Rights Council last year. If you have a Sanders presidency or a Biden presidency, I would bet that in 21, 22, you'd have the US, you know, running for a seat on the Human Rights Council again. That sort of stuff is is cyclical. But I think there is one big shift now um, and something which Trump has accelerated, which is in the last few years, we've seen uh, a fundamental transformation of China's role at the UN. And China has responded to this vacuum that Trump has created by uh, asserting that it is a multilateral leader. The Chinese are much more active in UN debates than they were a few years ago. They are demanding and winning top jobs in the organization. And if you talk to diplomats from, from European countries, actually from any, any part of the world in New York, they say China is now a factor in the UN in a way that it simply was not before. And whoever wins the next US election... China will be there and China will be asserting its right um, to be a leader in the multilateral system. And that will affect, you know, America's capacity to, to re-engage as a leader here. We'll be right back. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? What can governments do differently and better? Critiques are easy. Providing realistic policy proposals is harder. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and with my colleagues and collaborators here at the Century Foundation, we're trying to answer the hard policy questions with specific, concrete proposals. You can see our ideas and join the conversation on our website, tcf.org.
Hi, I'm Thanasi Gambanis. I'm here with Richard Gowan at the International Crisis Group office in New York. We're talking about the future of international diplomacy in the United Nations. Uh, Richard, right before the break, you you started talking about the, uh, uh, the, the growing role of China as the U.S. sort of pulls back from its commitment to the U.N. Uh, and uh, I want to hear more about that and, and maybe in the context of how is the U.N. doing uh, uh, in terms of fulfilling its primary political mandate, which is to serve as the international clearinghouse for the thorny diplomatic international issues that that bilateral relationships aren't sufficient to handle. Well, to be honest, the UN is doing pretty badly at the moment, at least when it comes to peace and security, which after all is at the center of the UN Charter. And you know, even before President Trump came into office, we saw the Security Council awfully paralyzed over Syria and failing to make an impact on other crises like Yemen. Now, when we talk about the Security Council being paralyzed, it's always necessary to stop and take some historical perspective. The Council is still much more effective than it was during the Cold War. Um, In 1959, the Council passed a single resolution in an entire year Today, the council will pass um, a bunch of resolutions every week. So by historical standards, it has been a lot worse. But clearly, the council is going through a period of gridlock on a lot of major issues. In addition to the Middle East, you have Ukraine, uh, Myanmar, where, where China is blocking council action. And I think that boils down to a very simple reality, which is when three veto powers in in New York, the US, China, and Russia, uh, are in a state of growing competition then evidently the UN is going to be less effective. What's interesting is that away from the Security Council, um, and even in some areas where the US is not engaging, you do see the UN being a bit more effective. And there I would especially highlight climate change, which is a major theme of this week's General Assembly, where despite the fact that the US is not engaging on climate change, you see uh, China, other major emerging economies, um, other Western countries, um, you know, cooperating, I think, in pretty good faith um, to implement the Paris climate change deal. So, you know, the UN's, the UN's problems are huge, but um, they vary by, by subject area. The, the idea, I mean, the, the theory is that, um, of course, the United Nations reflects the power of its stakeholders, so it can't it can't tell superpowers what to do. Uh, and at the same time, the hope of, of its architects was that it, it would somehow uh, be able to cajole or persuade or shift uh, the behavior even of major actors like the USSR and the US at the time of its founding or the P5 members today uh, and increase that that zone of, of, of agreement. Uh, and, you know, when I, when I look at whether the UN is doing well, that's what I ask. So it's not, you know, can it solve the impossible problems. Of course it can. It can't solve great power competition. Uh, has it uh, made tensions between the US, China, and Russia more manageable than they would have been otherwise? And and I don't know. Ha- has it? You can make that argument. I'm afraid it's an argument that can sound very mi- minimalistic and pessimistic um, and doesn't sort of excite a lot of people. But if you look at the Syria file, uh, In past times, if there had been no multilateral institution to manage the conflict, 
then there would have been even less cooperation on issues like getting humanitarian aid into the country or caring for refugees in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. And I think the UN has performed disastrously in terms of uh, resolving the Syrian conflict, um, but it has done some good, despite a lot of imperfections, in terms of mitigating, um, you know, mitigating the loss of refugees. And so, you know, for those of us who sit around the institution and who, as in my case, have been watching it for 15 years, uh, you sometimes think, well, that's better than nothing. But I can understand that from anyone who's not in the Turtle Bay bubble, that may sound like a pretty depressing definition of success. Well, you know, I think all the time about the UN in Syria or the UN in Yemen or Libya. What about uh, conflicts like Ukraine, which you mentioned, or conflicts like the South China Sea? Does the UN play a role in, in mediating or, or de-escalating those major and important non-Middle Eastern conflicts? Uh, I mean, the, the Ukraine situation is a is a clear case of what happens when one veto power ensures that the UN has no serious political role. And, you know, there is a UN humanitarian presence in Ukraine. There's a, a tiny political office in Kiev. But uh, the UN has no, uh, you know, no real contribution on that conflict. South China Sea, again, at least two members of the Security Council really don't want the UN to have a significant role there. And that's China on the one hand, but actually also the US which prefers to deal with that situation on an alliance basis um, with countries like Australia. So the council doesn't have a role. Um, You know, I think, to be honest, if we're going to look for places where, you know, the UN does does still have an impact, it it does really come back to uh, primarily conflicts in Africa. And the record in Africa, despite real catastrophes in places like South Sudan is not that bad. And if you look at Liberia or Cote d'Ivoire, Sierra Leone, um, the UN has helped stand up, you know, decently functioning states after serious conflict. If you look at somewhere like the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, the UN has managed a gradual process of stabilization despite many setbacks. And so it's you know, it's really in the African case that the UN, I think, remains strategically most relevant. And 50% of the Security Council's time, and I think more than two-thirds of the Council's resolutions are still on Africa. So that's, as you said, maybe not not the most inspiring record, but also certainly better than nothing. I, I think historically the the reference point that we should think about is the era before World War One, where there was not a bi- not a bipolar world, but a multipolar world with a lot of belligerent, uh, bad faith powers. And today, the United States is not acting like a steward of, mm-hmm. of international peace, but just like another competitor uh, among others. Uh, and of course, it's, it would be I think hard to argue that we'd be better off scrapping this whole thing, and that somehow the world would be better if there were no uh, if there were no UN. Uh, but I, I do wonder... It's, it's actually funny to think, what would the UN have done in 1914 after Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo? It probably it would have launched a commission of inquiry. They would have sent, they would have sent three people sent to Sent three people, yeah, and then they would have reported back in about six months. And maybe that would have calmed down the situation. I mean, that sounds, sounds silly, but actually you know, the UN does sometimes play that sort of uh, deconfliction role. 
All right, and the, and the point is that, you know, the UN can't stop George Bush from invading Iraq. If he's hell-bent on making up a fake case to war, lying and invading some country, the UN can't stop him. But uh, in a case where people are willing to, to climb down from the edge of a cliff, uh, the, the UN can give them a forum to do that in or, or, or an excuse uh, to, to be a little bit less than their worst, uh, worst self. I mean, actually, just to, to pick up on that, uh, we, we did a, a little study at Crisis Group in the run-up to this General Assembly um, looking for actual opportunities for the UN, um, which you can find on our website. Seven opportunities for the UN. Almost all, it's actually a very sharply uh, written piece. Um, but almost all of those are exactly cases where we think significant powers need to climb down and then the UN could step in to help. So Venezuela, for example, the, uh, the sort of deadlock that's emerged in Caracas will hopefully ultimately push everyone to compromise. And if there's a compromise on some sort of political settlement, it's then that you want the UN to step in and you know assist elections and assist the settlement. The UN probably can't do the first order mediation, but it can be there to, to help moderate actors when they actually want to make a deal. We'll be right back. I'm Abir Pomuk, and I'm a summer scholar at the Century Foundation. I am a nonprofit professional from Aleppo, and I worked in Syria during the war delivering humanitarian aid to children. Now I'm finishing my studies and beginning a new career as a foreign policy analyst. Here at the Century Foundation, I am researching non-state actors and U.S. policy in the Middle East. You can see all our projects on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, in the World section. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm at the International Crisis Group New York office with Richard Gowan, the UN Director. Uh, Richard, uh, for the last section of this conversation, I want to ask you uh, what I always ask at the end of these podcasts, uh, where we're trying to dream up what a better U.S. foreign policy could look like or what a progressive foreign policy could look like. So look to the future with me and tell me what in God's name could could happen to make this all better. What uh, what could the U.S. do to help revive uh, uh, the U.N.'s role where it's flagged uh, and to reinvest in the institution and, and the relationship? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that you know, the current administration has walked away from a number of uh, U.N. agreements and a number of U.N. institutions uh, which it could re-engage with, and if it does re-engage, that will give them momentum. So we discussed climate a bit earlier. Although other powers are currently talking about climate at the UN without a serious US contribution, there's no doubt that if a um, uh, a, future, uh, a future White House rejoined the UN climate process, that, that would give it more credibility and that would increase the chances of the process helping mitigate global warming. There are other things which the US has pulled out of that I, I don't think are so decisive. I, I'm sorry to say that I don't lie awake at night worrying that the US is not a member of UNESCO at the moment. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's not of incredible import. But you know, climate is, is, is a big one. So I think there are, you know, there are certain steps that the US could take to re-legitimize and, um, and add energy to, to UN processes. But I think we do have to come to this, this point that 
we uh, we touched on in the the first segment of the the podcast, uh, which is U.S. Chinese relations in in the UN system, because I think there is a real risk at the moment that uh, tensions between the U.S. and China will gradually uh, paralyze significant chunks of the UN system. And the way that U.S. USSR tensions froze it for. 40 years? Uh, in, in, in an analogous way. I mean, it clearly you know, it's different historical circumstances, but I think whether it's on trade, uh, whether it's on development, um, or whether it's on security, U.S.-China tensions really could um, uh, make cooperation grind to a halt. And so I think there is a, uh, a strategic calculation that needs to be done in Washington, which is to what extent do we oppose China in multilateral settings? To what extent do we compete with China in multilateral settings? Um, and to what extent do we accept that we're going to have to compromise with Beijing in multilateral settings? And I think that very hard choice will um, actually really define the future of, of much of the multilateral system as we know it. I, I mean, uh, the, the thing that makes me despair a little bit is the real-life experiment that we got with uh, George W. Bush followed by Obama followed by Trump. And I feel like we saw very different American approaches to multilateralism and diplomacy. And you know, I'm openly a fan of international cooperation and, and uh, shared sovereignty and, and sacrificing short-term national interests in favor of you know, widening the pie and all this. Uh, it seems like the results weren't really promising that when uh, you know, when George W. Bush eviscerated, uh, uh, you know, some of our literal commitments and also uh, the legitimacy of the institution uh, that, you know, caused a lot of harm that, that we know. But then when Obama came in and, and acted much more like the kind of responsible steward of a, you know, of a big superpower that can't just run roughshod over over the world, that that did not lead to great leaps of progress, even on, on climate, where I think he, he did the right things on, 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 on climate. Uh, had that worked more effectively, I would imagine it would be harder to have undone, to be undone by Trump. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it seems like maybe uh, it's not enough uh, for, for America to behave better because the, all the superpowers in the world or the great powers uh, have, have moved into a stage where they're experimenting with uh, utility maximization and, and, and behaving a little bit like, like spoilers and regional powers instead of like global powers. I think you're right about the Obama era. Um, I think if, you know, if historical circumstances had been different and Obama had taken office um, without the financial crisis staring him in the face, it is possible that he would have put a climate change deal higher up his agenda and you might have seen him uh, you know, push much harder for a climate bargain in his first term. And I think that would have made a difference. I think if um, the US had got a multilateral climate bargain at an earlier stage, um, it would probably have, as you say, become more embedded in the international system. Um, it's, it seemed great at the time. I mean, at, at the time, I, did, I didn't think it was too late or, or not, you know, strongly advocated enough. It seemed, it seemed like a fantastic outcome of these slow but uh, complicated yeah. negotiations. Like you get 100 plus countries to agree to something, it takes that long. Uh, and, and, and yet, poof. 
Well, it, you know, it hasn't gone, you know, Paris hasn't gone poof. I mean, virtually every country on earth except the US and Syria is um, signed up to it to a greater or lesser degree. Um, I think Nicaragua was a little wobbly. But yeah, look, I mean, I think I think you're right to say that um, it, it's much easier for the for US administrations to, to tear up multilateral agreements than to rebuild them. And I, I do think that even if you got you know, a resurrected Kofi Annan as the next US president. Um, there would be a lot of leaders around the world who will be skeptical in future of US professions of commitment to multilateralism. Um, and, you know, that is a challenge that we face. I, I think that um, we, we are probably entering a period in which most really positive really innovative action on global issues is going to be more achieved through networks and coalitions of willing states, sometimes inside the UN system, sometimes outside them, where I think the UN has value maybe um, maybe more as a safety net um, and more as a venue of the last resort for the big powers to come together and sort out, um, sort out crises before they escalate out of control. Uh, again, that is a bit of a, a council of despair. Um, but I, I think that uh, multilateral institutions can still have value in terms of de-escalating problems, in terms of containing problems, even when they can't solve them. So imagine that we have an internationalist in the White House uh, in two years or six years. Um, they could be a Republican, they could be a, a Democrat, but someone who actually believes in diplomacy, cooperation, international peace and security. What, um, you know, I, I hate asking sort of short list questions, but what would be the top, uh, the top things you would advise that person to do uh, in their first year in office uh, with an eye towards reinvigorating the United Nations and uh, America's role in supporting international diplomacy? I think it does come down to climate. I think that what we're seeing... Uh, at this week's General Assembly, where you have Greta Thunberg, you have a lot of leaders talking about climate. That is one area where, given the you know now obvious and rapidly escalating consequences of climate change, there is a global demand for multilateral action. Um, and I think that actually that demand will increase as the consequences of climate change become more acute. So I think that that is the, the issue on which the US cannot afford to be uh, missing in action, and I think Trump has actually damaged his international profile quite, uh, you know, quite heinously by staying away from the climate process. So that's my number one recommendation. I think that um, it, uh, you know, it is also important going forward that the next U.S. administration should demonstrate a certain enthusiasm for UN human rights commitments and liberal norms, which has been rather lacking um, in the last few years. I think that the US commitment to liberal values is something that influences a lot of other states in the UN system. And um, in recent years, it's, you know, it, it's been lacking and that has sort of given autocrats a bit of a green light. Um, and so, you know, even quite basic stuff like rejoining the Human Rights Council, I think, has value. Um, 
I am scratching my head uh, to work out how the US really restores cooperative diplomacy to the Security Council. Uh, I, I, know, I th- think that the US could be more constructive in the Security Council uh, on issues like Yemen and Libya than it has been recently. But I, I don't have a magic answer to how you really get Russia, China, and the US uh, back on the same page about the importance of international cooperation in, in the Security Council. It seems to me that that will always be, be victim to their rising sense of competition. Um, so I think that's probably why I would say climate first. And I mean, the UN is a forum for virtue signaling is meaningful as well, because even if you can't, for example, you can't force uh, autocrats not to kill journalists, if you act like you think that's bad, that has value. And similarly, if you act like you think that's no big deal, as I would argue Trump has and the Khashoggi killing yeah. illustrates that, it does make a difference. You know, other rogue states and authoritarians will feel emboldened to do whatever they want and not even have to hide it or apologize for it or minimize it. I, I you know I think that is is true, and that's why I emphasize the the norms and values um, issues, and also you know China to some extent in its sort of you know its vision of the UN system, which it's been articulating quite strongly. As I say, it, it's very much about a a liberal a liberalism free multilateralism. It's all about cooperation, economic growth, but let's forget the human rights stuff. So on really simple things, the Chinese have been trying to cut human rights officers from UN peacekeeping missions just to sort of show their disdain for the human rights system. Um, you know, the US should be, you know, should be volubly countering that and saying, no, the values that we've built up since 1945 still matter. And if the US doesn't do that, um, then we move towards a, uh, a version of the world that is, is more on Beijing's terms. Well, and, and there's an argument to be made that uh, that, that states, including the, the United States, uh, defect from these international mechanisms when they feel like they can get a better deal or when they feel like the problem is small enough uh, that it won't hurt them if it blows up. But where it really counts, where there's real like real money involved, say the 2008 financial crisis, nobody wanted to sidestep the international system. They they everyone desperately wanted uh, to involve all the international multilateral financial and trade uh, bodies in solving that crisis, uh, which suggests that, uh, uh, again, climate is another one when it really matters uh, and there isn't a way to solve it bilaterally or with with a small coalition of the willing uh, uh, states, whether they like it or not, will uh, will go back to these fora. Well, I hope so. I mean, and it is, you know, it is worth keeping the 2008 experience in mind because you know now the pundits always say we're in an era of fragmentation, an era of nationalism. Pundits, pundits, <laughs> damn them! Um, but uh, you know, I remember 2008, 2009. That was when the G20 suddenly emerged as a global crisis management body. I remember oh, Gideon Rachman, the the very you know clear-eyed Financial Times columnist saying that for the first and only time in his life, he believed that global government or global governance could be a real thing. Maybe what we need to do to restore faith in multilateralism is to collapse the world economy again. Um, that, That is, from a historical perspective, one way out of this situation. 
um, from a policy perspective, it's a slightly difficult sell. Well, and let's hope that we don't need a Great Depression or a World War to uh, to revive uh, international diplomacy. Richard Gowan, thank you very much for joining us on, on the podcast. You've been listening to the TCF World uh, Podcast, episode 41, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about our work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.